Hi, this is Surviving Healthcare Podcast, and I have a guest here who's become very prominent named Paul Thomas, and he likes to be referred to as Dr. Paul. He's a pediatrician, and I'm going to let him carry away and tell us his story. All right. Well, thank you for having me on your show. You're uh, it's it's really a privilege to to be able to chat with you. Um, the the short version of my where I came from is actually a son of missionaries who took me to Africa when I was four years old. Uh, it was Rhodesia at the time, now Zimbabwe, and I finished high school in Africa. So my formative years were overseas. Um, you know, while you guys were having the civil rights movement here in the U.S. Um, we were having a similar sort of uprising in Rhodesia at the time with, uh, of course, freedom came to the country for the uh, African folks. Um, Bishop Muzarewa, who is the first African president, was actually a close friend of ours. So he was in our home a lot. Uh, yeah, I was very intimately involved in the freedom movement. That set the stage, I believe, uh, kind of almost written into my DNA, if you will, uh, to... You know, when you see injustice, you 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 resist it. You don't just turn a blind eye. And so when we get fast forward to where my life is today, that will make some sense, I think. Um, so I came to the States, went to. Uh, Before we go there, tell me the story about how you were put in jail and how uh, how you stood up to your school authorities briefly. <laughs> Thank you. OK, well, you've done your homework. A little um, bit. It, that's a that's a kind of a funny story. So. In uh, it's a British system school system. So in the equivalent of middle school, uh, they had grade school and middle school combined in Africa. So at the highest grade level, there would be what's called a head boy. And, and that's like the top dog. And they're so clever, the British system, because they would put us in charge of the rest of the students for discipline. I mean, people had to wear their tie straight, their socks had to be pulled up. I mean, it was like military and and we were really good at enforcing the rules. Well, the Rhodesian government had, in my opinion, illegally taken uh, over the country from Britain. It was a British colony. And so there was this ceremony of raising the Rhodesian flag uh, and, and instead of the Union Jack, which was the British flag. And it was the job of the head boy to do that. And I refused to raise the flag because it was my assessment. This was an illegal government. And you were and 11. You were 11, right? Well, yeah, maybe 12, 11 or 12. 12. <laughs> and in fact, I asked my parents later, I said, was that really my idea? Because I couldn't remember you know, what led up to my making that decision. And they said, oh, absolutely. And I said, well, how would an 11 or 12 year old come to that conclusion? And my mom reminded me, says, Paul, we lived politics in our home. You had Bishop Muzarewa in there. We had other resistance. Uh, my parents themselves were were fighting for freedom uh, for the the African people. Uh, so yeah, it it just happened. And then another time, I was handing out uh, revolutionary material, what they would call revolutionary, basically freedom information at a railway station in Zimbabwe at that time, which was Rhodesia. It was very much like apartheid. The the railway cars there was first class and second class for the whites and third class and fourth class. Fourth class was just cattle cars. And third class was wooden benches. And so, you know, the, the railway station was like this deluxe facility for whites and like just a, a mess for the African people. But I was just over in the, uh, I speak the language fluently, Shona. 
And so I was in the African section handing out these pamphlets and they came and arrested me. And I spent a few hours being interrogated. Uh, I, I didn't know what to do. I thought I was in real trouble. So I refused to let them know who I was. I pretended like I was, you know, very uh, illiterate. <laughs> they finally figured it out and had my parents come get me. Wow. Okay. Launch back into the U.S. story. Okay. So moving forward to the States, I came to the States to go to college, ended up at Dartmouth Medical School where I graduated, got my medical degree and did a pediatric residency in California. Uh, came out board certified, well, board eligible, became board certified, which I was board certified in pediatrics for 30 years and in addiction medicine for 10 years. Um, and then you know, there's a, there's a journey there. The first five years of my career, I was teaching residents and medical students. And then I, I realized I had so much debt that I was never going to dig out of that hole unless I went into private practice. So I, I enjoyed teaching, uh, but I went into private practice. I joined a group of three or four other pediatricians and worked there for about 13, 14 years until, so you know, here's the thing about docs, and, and we're probably of a similar generation. I mean, back when I was in medical school, we would read the MMWR from the CDC, and it ha had great information. Uh, so we were really, um, I think our training led us to believe that the CDC was at the top of the heap as far as, you know, they really had the best of the best. And so early on in my career, I didn't question anything that came out of the CDC. I just thought, you know, that's the truth. And that's the, these are the best of the best is what I was thinking. I used to read that thing too. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as I think we've learned, I certainly started to realize something was not right in pediatrics, especially. Uh, and I'm sure you've got your own stories in your field. Um, but in pediatrics, kids seem to be getting sicker and sicker. And they were also... Um, developing more and more chronic conditions. Uh, the canary in the coal mine for me was autism. Uh, you know, there was no autism when I was growing up as a kid. How about for you? Did you see autism when you were growing up? No. It no. was, what is it, one in 10,000 or one in 100,000? What was the rate, supposedly? Yeah, they, you know, it wasn't diagnosed. Even the first case, I think, was Connor in the 1940s or something like that. But uh, it's a new phenomenon uh, in the last century. And the rates have just skyrocketed, especially in the last 20 years. Is it really one in 30 now? That just seems hard to believe. It's uh, somewhere between one in 30 and one in 45, I think. But mind you, that classification now includes the whole spectrum, right? So, so this is where it, people get confused. The severe nonverbal autistic child who was totally normal at age one, most of them, and a lot of them speaking, then regressing into this horrendous condition of, you know, banging their heads and flapping and, and being completely nonverbal disconnected. Those are the severe cases on that spectrum of severity. And those are probably the severe cases are probably, I don't know, 10, 20% of the total group, but there's too many of those. I mean, we, we are, I believe, and the data is starting to show that this is iatrogenic. Um, you know, you and I know as caused doctors by that, physician. Yep, there are things yeah. we can do that cause harm, uh, and it's not just what we're doing. The, the environment has a part in it as well. It's a toxic world we live in, and if you're 
you know, if you're vulnerable, uh, we know, for example, kids with severe mitochondrial disease succumb to uh, toxins so much easier. Uh, but the toxins in vaccines became suspect for me uh, back in a, around 2000. It's sort of an interesting thing that woke me up. I, um, I read the article by Andrew Wakefield. Now, of course, he's been demonized. And I mean, they went after him for 10 years. And if you look him up on any kind of Google search, uh, he looks like the poster boy for medical fraud. Was he paid by industry? Uh, no, he, he was, uh, or lawyers, very academic rumor. Gast yeah. pediatric gastroenterologist, the Royal, uh, college of London or something like that. One of the top university medical centers. And what happened was there were a number of severely autistic kids who also had severe GI issues. And he was a pediatric gastroenterologist and he and his team looked at about 10 kids with autism who had GI issues and 10 kids with GI issues who did not have autism. And he found in their GI tracts there was an anomaly. There was something new. And so he reported on that and made the conclusion, perhaps, I mean, he, he just, you know, he presented his case series, which is good medicine. When you find something new, you present it to the world. And he made in his conclusions, perhaps there's an association between the MMR vaccine and autism. And he made the suggestion that maybe separating that vaccine out into its individual components would be a safer way to vaccinate. So I read that and it was my first sort of, huh, vaccines might be related to autism. This is interesting because to this day, Mainstream medicine is denying any connection, even though we have ample peer-reviewed studies. There's plenty of evidence that there is actually a connection. But the autism one always gets everybody up in arms. So let's let's broaden it, right? Because it wasn't just autism. We're seeing in pediatrics way more ADD, ADHD. We're seeing more type 1 diabetes. We're seeing more... Um, allergies, autoimmune conditions. I mean, eczema is, you know, through the roof. If you look at the incidence of chronic illness in kids, it's just skyrocketing. That trend is not changing one bit. If anything, it's accelerating. So as a scientist and a pediatrician who's, you know, kids are, what I'm supposed to be doing is taking care of my kids, my patients. Uh, if I don't know what's causing their conditions, then all I'm doing is putting a Band-Aid on their problem. And sadly, I think you probably have seen this as well. Uh, the first two years of medical school, it's solid basic science. Nobody can argue with that. When we go into our uh, clinical rotations and then residency, it's a we really learn how to diagnose and treat, right? We label disease and we treat it. And Sadly, too often we stop looking for the underlying cause. At least that's what I was seeing in pediatrics. Well, you know, I'm like Rip Van Winkle. I didn't wake up until about a year and a half ago, and it's been an agonizing journey for me. I mean, for you, it's a little easier because you did it over a decade. Uh, but uh, I mean, I'm just stunned every day. And yeah. I, yeah. And so I'm, I'm a kind of a reporter, a commentator about it, a sophisticated reporter. Okay. So that's my, that's my role here. But uh, are, are you still practicing? No, no, no. I retired okay. several years ago and I uh, resigned my medical license. They claim 
I surrendered my medical license. That's the verbiage of the medical boards. Um, right. And I, I'd love to get into that and your subsequent uh, uh, story. So sure. go ahead and shoot. Okay. So uh, fast forward a little bit. I'm in this group practice with uh, four other pediatricians. And in 2004, five, six, and seven, each of those years, in my own practice. So, you know, there's five of us. We had a total patient population of maybe 8,000. I had over, I had close to 3,000 patients who were assigned to me that had chosen me as a pediatrician. I had a thriving, booming practice. I was getting 30 plus newborns a month. Uh, people were ch choosing me. And the reason I believe that they were choosing me was that I was honoring the process of informed consent. You know, there's sort of a slow awareness coming into the world that, you know, the current CDC schedule might be too aggressive. Let's just put it that way, that it might be actually causing some harm. And so parents would come to my practice, many of them already questioning the CDC schedule. Some of them already had made the decision they didn't want to do any vaccines whatsoever. So I would honor that. I I realized that, hmm, this is interesting because I was really trained to respect the value of vaccines. I mean, the, the concept is solid, right? I mean, if you can introduce a uh, attenuated version of, of the disease-causing virus, for example, with chickenpox or MMR and prevent the severe disease, that's wonderful. So it's, it's a very wonderful idea. And some vaccines are highly effective, measles being one of them. Uh, chickenpox worked. We didn't need it, but it works. The vaccine is very effective. But the missing piece on the vaccine story has always been there's no real control group. There's no. Right. So you no you you overstated the case there. You said it was effective. It's it's unknown whether it's effective because the studies have never been done on any vaccine. No double blind randomized control study has ever been done on any vaccine. So rather than characterizing it as a, a good uh, idea, it's a good theory, and that's it's all a good it theory. is. Theory, yes, thank you. Because there is no evidence to support any vaccine whatsoever, freaking ever. Yeah, and the, there is fairly substantial evidence to suspect that every vaccine does more harm than good does more I, has a higher mortality than uh than uh, uh than than you'd have if you did nothing yeah. especially in an environment like uh the united states where we have good water sources and so on right so right. uh anyway no that's you're absolutely you're talking right to the choir I, here <laughs> but i i, I can say whatever right i to want the, too right yeah. to the punchline there yeah uh, over time, you know, over time, I became more and more aware that what you stated is exactly true. Because of the absence of good long-term studies or any long-term studies in most cases, uh, and the absence of the placebo, we just don't know unless, and here's the key, unless we look at completely unvaccinated patients and compare them to their vaccinated cohorts, which is something that I became aware of around that time. So, when I had these four patients regress into severe autism, by 2007, it was like, I, I'm not going to participate in the harming of children like this. If I can possibly avoid another kid becoming autistic, I will do it. I went to my partners at that point. One vaccine that was a clear mistake was giving hepatitis B to newborns. I mean, in America, less than 1% of moms have hepatitis B. In other words, less than 1% of infants are at risk of a catching hepatitis B from their parent, from their mother, birth mother. And we know who those moms are because the OBGYNs test. 
So in my practice, there's never, ever been a single case in 35 years of a mom delivering who had hepatitis B and we didn't know it. It's Newborn, never happened. Newborns generally stay away from prostitutes too. <laughs> yeah, they don't have yeah, sex. They don't... they don't share dirty needles. <laughs> right. And and that vaccine has a huge dose of aluminum, 250 micrograms of aluminum, which is a toxic dose to the developing Im immune system, the neuro neurological system, their brains. Uh, it just made no sense. And we now have articles showing that it actually is part of uh, the increase in autism that we started talking about. Uh, anyway, I go to my partners, I go, I will no longer support giving hepatitis B to babies who don't need it. And I'm going to slow the schedule down. I only want to do one aluminum containing vaccine at a time. I want to wait on the MMR till age three. It seemed too many times I was hearing these stories of a child given the MMR at 12 or 15 months, and then either immediately or, or within weeks or months regressing into severe autism. I'd never seen a kid regress into autism after age three. You know, once language is developed, I thought, theoretically, that makes more sense. And so that's what I started. Well, well, they showed me the door. They said, no, it's unethical not to do the CDC schedule. <laughs> I felt it was unethical to follow the CDC schedule. So I started my practice June, uh, June, June or July 1st of 2008, Integrative Pediatrics, where I've been practicing until this past December when I retired, relinquished my license. That's another whole story. We'll so get you were, to. you were able to snatch your 3000 patients. I got about, so it was interesting. Um, you they, moved next door, right? I moved close enough, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was so strange. Uh, they allowed me to move closer to the main office. They didn't want me, in, we had a satellite office at the time that they thought was going to be the booming area and they didn't want me over there. So my separation <laughs> agreement prevented me from going to what they thought would be the booming area, but allowed me to stay closer to where our primary office was. So it worked out really well. I had about a thousand initially who followed immediately and then another thousand probably who followed after that. My practice grew over the first uh, five to 10 years to over 15,000 active patients. Um, we were just booming. And then I, um, <laughs> so I was also raising a, a bunch of kids. At one point we had eight kids in the home. I have three biological kids and, and many adopted um, and I needed to finish raising them before I uh, put the target on me, so to speak. But I was already aware that what we were doing with vaccines was problematic. And the reason it became so clear to me was as my practice boomed, I'm getting more and more patients coming in. I mean, literally weekly, I would hear at least one, sometimes three or four new families with the same story. Their child was fine, and then they got us uh, the MMR, or sometimes it was the 18-month DTAP, and their kid regressed into autism. I would literally Paul, hear that story, and they're crying. Let me, let me tell you this: what I always say about this, and I want you to tell me whether it's accurate or not, because I'm not sure it's accurate. I always say that there's two kinds of evidence in medicine. There's randomized controlled trials, and then there's anecdotes. And we are left because the randomized controlled trials have been ruined by this outside money, 75% of which is from Gates or the um, Wellcome Trust or the NIH from NIAID from Fauci. So it, that ruins the, so all we're left with is anecdote. And I, I say, try this anecdote on for size. Tell me if this is accurate. I say, 10, we, you know, we 10,000 kids across the country out of the millions who are vaccinated 
immediately after the vaccine or within a few days, fall down on the floor, stop talking and start banging their heads and never speak again. So could I bump that to 50,000 or what should I say? Huh? Um, well, what, what's the interval between the vaccines and the, and the onset of the autism? And, and what do you think those numbers are? Wow. I, I would be making a guess. Uh, That's we fine. know, we know we have a million cases a year, I believe something like oh, that. Christ. But, but I think those are the, the, the severe cases, like I was saying, it's 10, 20%, maybe, uh, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, so I don't want to hazard a guess, but it, it's it's way too many. This, this, so, so to say tens of thousands of kids a year, that would be accurate. Probably. Okay. Probably. Well, I mean, that's, like, that's going to be my anecdote from now on. I think we have 4 million births a year in the U.S. So you could, you could say, what if, um, what if 10%, no, not 10%. Let's see. Ah, I'm no, I'm, don't, no worries. I got it. Yeah. Thank you. Go on with your story. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no worries. Anyway, it, it's happening way too much, right? Yeah. Uh, where was I on the story? Well, I think you're about to uh, dive into the uh, the way you structured your study and your conclusions and what you did next. Okay, gotcha. I know where we're at. So I'm seeing this this massive trend in pediatrics. I've started my own practice. I had two waiting rooms. One is sick and one is well. I thought that. Uh, from my past practice, we had this massive waiting room that was just intermingled with really sick kids and lots of well kids and just didn't make sense because everybody was always sick. And I thought, well, of course, you come to the pediatrician, you get sick. You're going to sit in this waiting room with a bunch of really sick kids. So I separated out these two waiting rooms, put a glass wall between them and an aquarium, made it all pretty. Uh, lovely design. I'm, I'm really sad to be leaving this practice. Um, but uh, I started noticing a trend very obvious within a few years that the sick waiting room was usually empty and it was becoming more so that way. The well waiting room was standing room only. And it was like, huh, something's going on here. I wonder if we should look at this. So I did. I got an IRB, which is Institutional Review Board approval, to retrospectively look at my data. Um, Liz Mumper is a pediatrician who I had heard speak at conferences, and she had published a small study showing there was no autism in her unvaccinated kids. But it was, you know, 200 patient total study, and, and it was published in a peer-reviewed journal. I thought, well, I have way more, a larger population. Why don't I do the exact same thing and reproduce, replicate her study, which I did, and I found basically the same thing. I couldn't get it published. Even the same journal that had published her study refused to even look at it. So not being really savvy in the world of publishing, I got discouraged. I thought, well, I'll just write a book. So I was, I'd kind of been ready to write a book anyway. And so that's, that was what was the incentive to write the vaccine friendly plan, which became the target on me. Uh, I had that the thing nerve. was conservative. I mean, it wasn't, it really didn't state the, the reality completely as far no, as I it, could tell. It was yeah, very it was conservative. An there was a lot of apology. You know, it was nothing like an anti-vax book. Yeah. You eventually published that paper in some sort of tiny journal somewhere or other. Yeah. So um, so the vaccine-friendly plan really put the target on me. The Oregon Medical Board started coming after me. And they've been after me for four years, um, basically fishing. I mean, they, these were not patient complaints. This was the board itself trying to get my data, trying to get 
patient information so they could try to see if they could drum up some complaints, which they were never successful at doing, mind you. Uh, there were no patient complaints. Uh, anyway, January of 2019. Just to go, just to put a footnote on this, I, I had a friend, he's deceased, but he had the uh, Utah Medical Board going through his trash to try to find something on him. And if he, you know, he was a cosmetic surgeon, so you always have problems. So eventually right. they snatched his license when he was in his early 80s. But uh, but these these boards are draconian and they're, they're I mean, I'd like to get into that uh, with you, but yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Um, so January of 2019, I get a letter from the medical board here in Oregon where I was practicing. And it says, prove that the vaccine-friendly plan is as safe as the CDC schedule. Now, the CDC has never proven that their schedule this year is safer than last year's, nor have they ever shown that the full CDC schedule is safe at all. In fact, they've never researched it. So that people are not aware of the fact that this recommended schedule that everybody's taking as the way to do things has never been studied for safety. No adequate studies at all. None. Never been studied yeah. for safety. It's just so, like instantly. It's like this entire psychiatric drug formulary. None of those uh, drugs. You you're aware of that? Okay, sorry oh, yeah. to interrupt you. Yeah. No, no, no. It's it's that's another huge area, right? I mean, psychiatry is is the epitome of label and treat, right? You you have a syndrome, which is just a constellation of symptoms, yeah. and then you have a list of drugs that you're going to use for that. It's it's insanity. Um, anyway, I hired an outside expert. I decided somebody gave me the idea because I'm baffled. I'm mean, how do I prove this? And, and a, a colleague of mine said, well, just do a QA analysis. You know, whenever you have an intervention in medicine, you can do a quality assurance. And he said, get an outside expert to come in. And so I did. I brought in a pediatrician who was an informatics expert, former neonatologist. He set up healthcare systems in multiple countries around the world. This guy was one of those nerds. I mean, a science data genius nerd. He comes in all dressed up, suit and tie, and I'm in my Hawaiian shirt at that point. <laughs> and I'm saying, man, take your tie off, relax. I gave him a cubby and a computer, and I said, have at it. Pull every single patient born into my practice and look at all health outcomes, and let's see what happens. We'll see if there's any difference between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed or the vaccine-friendly plan. So he did. Uh, actually, the end of the first day, he comes out of his cubby, and he goes, Paul, this is amazing. The data just jumps out at you. He says, I know I'm not supposed to look at the data. I'm just supposed to gather it. But your unvaxxed kids just don't get sick. So it turns out that's true. So and you had electronic medical records. He was able to do that rapidly. Yeah. That's it, amazing. He, he took a week. Uh, he yeah. was really thorough. And um, we, were able to get, we were able to publish the largest real world data comparing vaxxed to unvaxxed. I mean, this is what he said is, Paul, this is more powerful data than anything that's ever been published because it's real world. This is actually happening in your practice. This isn't some epidemiological analysis. This is the actual data. So we published that in the International Journal of Public Health. And uh, I knew what would happen. Anytime you publish a study that shows vaccines in a negative light, uh, you, they're going to come after you. And so eventually they, so crazy, the journal that published it retracted it based on one complaint. We were not allowed to address the complaint. The complaint was basically as follows. Uh, everybody knows that unvaxxed patients don't seek medical care. So therefore it nullifies the data. Well, in our paper, we had actually shown how 
everybody is accessing healthcare because we looked at other parameters to prove that point. Uh, but nevertheless, it got retracted basically for that reason. It has since the data has been reanalyzed re and published in another journal. And we showed actually that the unvaxxed were more likely to have a well child visit than the vaccinated. <laughs> so the exact opposite of their complaint. So we completely disproved their complaint for the paper. Uh, we looked at one other thing, which was actually, I'm really glad they they did this. Uh, my co-author team, teamed up with Russell Blaylock. He's a pediatric neurologist who's written extensively on autism and various pediatric issues. Uh, they did the reanalysis and they did another thing. They said, what happens to babies or children rather who are vaccinating and then stop compared to those who are vaccinating and continue to vaccinate? The finding was those who stop vaccinating at any time have half the health issues of those who continue to vaccinate. So even this is good news for parents. If you're listening and you're wondering, well, I've already been vaccinating. What should I do? You can stop at any time and your child's health outcomes will improve significantly, by the way. Let's hope that can that uh, holds true for the COVID uh, jab, which, yeah. you know, it's it's speculative. We don't know enough. We don't know enough, but chances are, yeah, well, there's no question you're better off to stop yeah. and continue getting boosters. So that's, that's right. definitely true. Um, so what was the Oregon Medical Board's response to the publication of that article? Five days after it was available online, I got a call from my attorney. Uh, Paul, sorry to tell you this, but the board had an emergency meeting and your license has been suspended. Uh, their rationale was that I was a threat to public health. So I had six months of not working. And then actually uh, a friend of mine said, well, what they did was illegal. And you should ask your attorney to question them about that. And actually he did. And they were willing to give me back my license with some few stipulations. Now listen to these stipulations. It'll give you an idea of what the board's worried about. I was not allowed to do well child visits. I was not allowed to speak to patients or staff about vaccines and I was not allowed to do research that involved patients. How long ago was this? That this... was uh, June of 2020. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, December, sorry. Dis it, no, it was December 23rd, December 3rd of 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Because I published the article in November of 2020. And then it was, yeah, it was, it was right after that. They took my license six months later, I got it back with stipulations, but they continued after me. I had, I looked at it once I was going through my computer because it felt like every week I was getting something from the board, some new inquiry. I mean, it was consuming a massive amount of time and money. Um, and they had sent me 60 separate letters on different issues over a period of a couple of years. I think they had a they had one of their uh, investigators. It was his full time job, full -time. probably. Yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of uh, questions. If you want to go on with the story, you can do that, or I can just pepper you. Well, um, I'll finish the story and then let's get into yeah. your questions. So, just so people know, I was practicing but not seeing well kids, not talking about vaccines. It really severely limited my practice uh, and my ability to do it. I mean, patients come because they want to talk about vaccines. Uh, so I was limited to seeing sick kids. And remember, I didn't have that many sick kids in my practice. <laughs> the, the, the less vaccinated they are, the, the the healthier they are, which is a point 
that take home point, folks. I mean, if you look at the actual real world data from my study, you are your child will be way healthier, less ear infections, less sinus infections, less lung infections, less eye infections. So less infections in general. Now, that should make you go, what? I thought vaccinated, you'd vaccinated to prevent infections. Well, maybe your vaccine might reduce your chance of chickenpox or measles, but it's increasing your chance for everything else. And, and so, you know, when you balance that all out, it's the highly vaccinated who are a threat to the public, not the unvaccinated who don't get sick. So just to make that point. Um, but yeah, they came after me to the point where it, every attorney I consulted said, in Oregon, it's a kangaroo court. So in other words, I, I had a big trial coming up that was going to be in front of a judge. They set aside, listen to this. Administrative law weeks. judge, not a not a real judge. Not a real judge. It's yeah. appointed for that they, purpose. They pay him. The board, the state pay the board pays the guy, I think. Yep. The, yeah. the state pays for that person who can only make recommendations to the board. His and the judgment board can turn is not down. binding. Yeah. So this same board that is on a witch hunt because they're taking orders from the, I think the National Federation of Medical Boards, which is another whole corrupt entity. Um, they would then supposedly, uh, the judge is going to find some little thing to slap my hand on. And then their their whole goal was to take my license anyway. So every attorney I talked to said, you can't win this. You're going to end up with fines. Probably they were rattling off some stuff to make it look like they could find me a half a million, maybe more. And everybody said, just just retire, resign. So, so that's what I did. Um, just dece- this last December, last last month, I, I turned in my license. I'm I'm now a free man. So um, we're gonna do a lot more public education. I've got a couple more books I need to write, and um, in a sense, I'm now free to do that. The, the only sadness for me and my patients know this is that I can't help them in the way I used to. But thankfully, the the practice was purchased by the the team members who are already here. And so they're carrying on. So you've got their emails of all those patients, don't you? You can put those as your, your entry to your, uh, your machine that turns out stuff and you can solicit those people to, to, to send other uh, uh, friends and so on and so forth. You, you need an email list. So you've got them, right? Oh yeah. I know. I have, yeah. I have their contact information. Sure. Well, that's that's a heck of a story. Um, a couple of quick questions. The yeah. some of the news stories I saw uh, asserted that you that uh, one of your patients had tetanus. Uh, tell me that story. Okay. Because of the no vaccination. Right. I'm sure so there's more to the story. This is a good one to to illustrate how, um, well, how the board operates. Okay. I don't. I I I could use a lot of expletives. <laughs> so, I get a phone call my office does the front desk from the family of this young man. Well, he was like 11 years old and got tetanus and he was in the intensive care at our local hospital, OHSU. So he's in the, the biggest hospital system for tetanus that almost killed him. And he was four months in the intensive care. Mind you, I've never heard of this patient. I, I didn't know of them. They're not patients of mine. <laughs> he got tetanus on a farm in rural Oregon <clears throat> And the family weren't the type of family he does. They don't vaccinate. Uh, they just kind of take care of their own. They do their own thing. 
And uh, unfortunately, he was in a horse barn and got a massive gash on his head. And the family did their best to clean it out and sew it up with some cat gut. Well, you know, if you've got any tetanus spores in a, in a closed wound, that's the perfect setting for tetanus. And sadly, he got a bad case of tetanus, almost died. I had no knowledge of the family, the patient, until he'd already been in, in the local institution for four months where all the infectious disease experts, all the residents and medical students, all the attendings tried to get them to vaccinate this boy. The family refused for four months. They would not let him leave the hospital until he had a pediatrician. No pediatrician would take him because he was unvaccinated. So they called my office begging, please, will you at least let us come see you because they're not going to let us out of the hospital unless we have a pediatrician. I said, sure, I'll see you. So they discharged him, drove right to my office from the hospital. I mean, he could barely walk. He was pretty, pretty severely affected. And uh, I saw him. And at that point, of course, I now become his pediatrician. Now, the way they wrote it up, they made yeah, it. I got it. Like I'll quote it. I was. In a case from 2019, an unvaccinated six-year-old patient of Thomas's developed an acute, see, implying that it was your patient before, right. developed an acute tetanus after sustaining a deep wound in his scalp. He yep. spent almost two months, et cetera, et cetera. This, uh, one of my friends is Chris Bray, who's another Substack author, and he says the problem with reporters today is that nobody, they, nobody, DF, everybody DFR, that's a don't freaking read, right? <laughs> and so these guys say, ah, you know, uh, anti-vax, uh, you know, check this sort of thing, you know? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is like so fraudulent that they would try to pin his tetanus as if I was the reason he didn't, he, that he got tetanus and he wasn't my patient. It's a wild yeah, so, story. Yeah. Every single story is, is that way in, in some twist or, or another, um, it's a misrepresentation of what actually happened. Here, here's this this same kind of genre. Despite overwhelming scientific research, despite voluminous peer-reviewed studies to the contrary, that childhood vaccines cause autism. Which, of course, there's no research and nothing that 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 you know to that effect. I mean, it's or you know, I I inverted what I said, but anyway. Paul, you are an optimistic young man. I'm four years older than you are, and I, I, my optimism's been beaten out of me a little bit. But I think you were optimistic from the start. Um, so, well, that sounds like a, a a nice story. Are you going to be able to make enough money to make ends meet with your uh, platform and all that? Uh, I, I'm like you said, I'm optimistic. Right, right now, I'm just you know first two months of quote retirement, and. Um, yeah, the the inflow isn't quite matching the outflow, but but we'll get there. I'm not worried about that. You, you know, this Substack thing, it's a five to ten percent rate of uh, contributions, and if you have a few tens of thousands of people on your free list, you have enough money to uh, to make it. And I've got a friend who's built his to thirty thousand. Huh. And if he monetizes it, um, he's instantly and he's instantly in plenty of money to make his expenses. Well, I, I've got a whole lot of other questions, but is there anything else you want to go into first before I, I start uh, shooting these things to you? No, I, I, I think I'd be interested in getting your questions, actually. I mean, we haven't talked about COVID. We can, but why don't you go ahead and start with uh, the things that are, um, in your mind, important? Okay. So, you know, I, I think of these 
problems as a spectrum of risk. And of course, smoking dwarfs anything else, fluoride, even vaccines. Smoking is related to one in five deaths in the United States, right? Vaccines is probably the second worst thing. And, you know, the others that we think about are things like pollutions, plastics, fluoride, and they're, they're much smaller risks. But how would you order the risks in everyone's life? And what are the things that you think um, people should uh, can mitigate easily? Fluoride, for example, can be mitigated completely by reverse osmosis uh, water filtering systems, which yes. aren't, you, you know, it's not that expensive or you can buy bottled water. Um, but um, go over the things that... Uh, that that are you know down the list from smoking and you'd agree that smoking is the the biggest risk that anyone has uh today i think vaccines are a bigger risk because virtually everybody is taking vaccines not everybody's smoking but if if you were to have everybody smoke absolutely i i agree um there's so a vaccines study is called, number two yeah. based on your Right. There, there's a group, there's a study called the control group and anybody can go the control group.org and uh, look at their analysis of, of the data that what they did was they surveyed the entire country. They got all but two states uh, to respond. And what that study showed is absolutely shocking in the unvaccinated population in the United States, which by the way, represents a quarter of 1%. So a, a quarter of 1% of the people in the United States are completely unvaxxed. There's 7% the in, in Oregon, is that right? This is for the whole country. But for Oregon, it's higher. Uh, might be, yeah, might be a little higher, maybe, maybe 2%. Uh, that's all. Yeah. I thought it was higher. Anyway, no. go ahead. So- so what that study showed, now, mind you, it's a survey study, so it's not as powerful as, for example, real-world data from my practice, but we found almost the same thing. So they found in the unvaxxed, there was no heart disease, there was no cancer, there was no diabetes. I mean, stuff you would go, what? Unbelievable. So again, it's a survey study, so it's not perfect, but the findings are consistent with what I was finding, like no ADD or ADHD in my unvaxxed patients. I mean, ADD, ADHD is affecting, I think, 10% of the population at this point of kids once you're school age. So um, vaccines are huge on that list. I was just giving that as an, as an illustration of um, why there's such a huge factor in the health problems of our country and of our world. Now, when you throw the COVID jab in there and... Um, so I believe there's really two control groups. There's the control group of people who've never had a vaccine, but the even more important control group folks is if you have not yet succumbed to getting the COVID gene manipulation shot. The bioweapon. That's the, yeah. that's the more important control group. Yeah, it's uh, demonic. Uh, so, so what about in the, this pantheon of risks, what about these other things? I mean, how, how big is the pollution and how big are the, uh, the, uh, hormone altering, uh, influences yep. and what about fluoride? Yeah. And, so and, and what first... about EMF? Do you have any feeling about any of those things? That's a big, broad question, but yeah. these are things so, you've thought about. Absolutely. So the first chapter of my book, the vaccine friendly plan is toxins, toxins, toxins. Now I wrote that book before I was aware of the EMF issue. But the, the toxins 
are what are really affecting health. So injected in vaccines, you've got aluminum, a massive uh, toxic load on your immune system and your developing brain, uh, which is why I think the vaccines are at the top of that list. But right up there, I mean, uh, Stephanie Seneff wrote the book on glyphosate. That is, you know, the, the number one pesticide being sprayed on corn and soy and sugar beets and most of our mass massive crops in, in this country are laden with glyphosate. And, you know, there's hundreds of articles that she references in her book. So pesticides in general, glyphosate specifically, this is where um, what you were talking about, you know, watch what you're putting in your body. You have to have filtered water. I'm sorry, I know the municipal water in our country is great, but it's not free of pesticides. It's not free of other toxins that get into the water. And you mentioned fluoride. They, many cities in, the, in our country are intentionally putting a neurotoxin fluoride into the water. Uh, the, the, the studies on, on the benefits of fluoride are mixed. I think when it's topically applied to teeth, it has real benefit to reducing cavities, but ingesting it is, is the, the risks just don't weigh out. They don't pan out. I don't think we should be fluoridating our water. And so as a consumer, if you live in a city where they fluoridate the water, as you mentioned, uh, filter it, uh, make sure you're getting the fluoride out of your water. Uh, so other other things, acetaminophen is worth mentioning. That should be taken off the shelves. Uh, Tylenol is acetaminophen, and there are so many products. There's hundreds of products that contain acetaminophen. What that product does is it blocks your production of glutathione. So the in our biochemistry in our cells, the, the N-acetylcysteine moving to glutathione gets blocked. In fact, if you have a Tylenol overdose, you go to the ER and they will give you IV uh, N-acetylcysteine, mucomist. The, the, to reverse the toxicity, you need NAC, which by the way, is one of the most important detox uh, products you can take uh, because glutathione is such a powerful antioxidant and uh, it boosts to our immune system as what, well. What about taking that orally daily? Yes, you can take NAC, N-acetylcysteine. Do you take uh, NAC? If, I do. What's the yep. dose? Um, the, the adult dose is typically 600 milligrams a day. You can take, uh, if you're, if you're actively trying to detox, you can take four times that amount if necessary, uh, safely, but you can certainly take 600 milligrams twice a day if you're an adult and, uh, that will help you, uh, for sure. Now, just to say I'm in Oregon, I'm no longer licensed. I still have a license in a couple other States, uh, but I'm not giving medical advice. This is just information. Uh, this is an informational platform, right? So we okay. want people. I to forgot my disclaimer. Yeah. The disclaimer, the full disclaimer, is that uh, this is uh, use this information at your own risk. Uh, uh, if you have a medical problem, you need to see a, a, pr a provider of some kind, a physician or a nurse practitioner or whatever. Yep. Just take this information and run it by your trusted medical provider. If you can find one, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. So uh, you were going to go on about the EMF risk and and uh, compare that to, because uh, I don't have any perspective about this. I've been reading about EMF. I'm considering writing about that, but it's it's bewildering uh, because, you know, all that information seems to be suppressed. I mean, yeah. you've got this data that where the kids' brains heat up. If they little little kids with a thin skull use uh, cell phones, that doesn't sound very good. And yeah. you can no, mitigate that by turning off your Wi-Fi at night or... Uh, uh, you know, put, keeping your uh, phone on uh, 
airplane mode that turns it off. And I, I got a, uh, EMF meter. I got a gadget. Let's see my gadget. Have you ever seen okay. that thing? That, I've, I've, I've heard about these gadgets. So how much EMF is in your office? Well, I'm, uh, my office is a home office, you know? Okay. So, uh, I, when you approach the Wi-Fi router or whatever it is, um, the thing goes into the red, right? It, Interesting. And then see, that's, hang on. I guess you can't see it there. That yellow. Yeah, I saw that's it. yellow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, that's what's going on around my computer. You can of course use, uh, ethernet cable, which I've right. done. Um, I'm trying to bring the cable into the view that yeah. cable goes to the router, which is a room away with a concrete wall in between. So this room isn't too bad, but my cell phone, of course, if I turn that on, that'll, that'll probably go into the red very quickly. Interesting. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm unfortunately still needing to use technology. I have a cell phone, uh, you know, one of those smartphones because it allows me to work no matter where I am. Look at that. Yep. Wow. That is impressive. But you take it away and then it goes back down. And yeah. the computer, so yeah, go when I go for a, a walk or a run and I'll put my, I, I have an app that shows me how far I'm going, you know, and I like to know the distance of my walk or run. Uh, I put that in my pocket and I can feel the heat on my thigh. It, it is absolutely real, folks. This is a lot of energy and um, you're absolutely right. They are sweeping. They're just not looking at it. So it's it's unstudied, really. Uh, but there are enough studies. You've you've done some of the research, it sounds like, to show that we should be very concerned. And I, I just worry about, you know, what, what they got these different new 5G, we're going to have 6G. And there's this idea of having um, satellites beaming down so that you can cover the entire earth. Uh, and, you know, people just think, oh, how great. I can be anywhere and I can have cell service. It's not great, folks, if you can't get away from the the energy that's being beamed on you uh, from satellites. I, that That really concerns me. So... You know, with your current state of knowledge, which is higher higher and more uh, detailed than mine, do you consider this a risk that is similar to fluoridating water or uh, a higher risk or lower risk than that, for example? I mean, vaccines clearly are second to smoking. Yeah. If if everyone smoked. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> I think the EMF risk is a little bit unknown, but it's real. I, I think we're... We're going to, I think it's right up there with the glyphosate and pesticides. I mean, because it's so pervasive. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Uh, you know, as they make these smart cities and they put these transmitters everywhere, uh, the amount of radiation we're being exposed to just goes higher and higher and higher. Uh, you know, cells that are dividing are at risk. And so this really does not bode well for pregnancy where you've got a, a an embryo developing a, a baby's coming uh, a lot of a lot of cell di division going on and then you're going to irradiate those rapidly dividing cells uh it, it seems like a recipe for disaster so uh, bouncing around a little bit um your vaccine friendly plan which is your book which is still available on amazon uh and th that the listeners can get and i recommend it except for it's a little conservative about what you say i mean you, you may want to write another book that tells what you really think yeah um, so let, but, let me make a statement about that if i may 
the vaccine friendly plan folks if if you are already informed enough to know that you're not going to vaccinate at all then this is not a book you need okay this book was written for a person who is really of the mind that the cdc knows best and if if that's your thinking which sadly is most of america most of the world then it's very hard to go from that mentality to do nothing I have a son whose wife is pregnant. He is, he's going to be my my second grandchild, and his wife is all in on the CDC schedule. She could not conceive of doing nothing. In fact, she's having a hard time even going through the vaccine-friendly plan because it doesn't line up with the CDC. But the vaccine-friendly plan is a safer way, but it's still not safe enough. You're still injecting too much aluminum. You're still doing too many vaccines too soon when the immune system is not really ready to, to handle that stimulation. Uh, so yeah, if, if you're gonna read this book, it's just to open your mind because it's well-written with good science behind it. Uh, there are some things in there that I now believe are wrong. Um, I wouldn't follow my own advice that's in that book today because I have more data, right? This is science. When you know better, you do better. When you know more, you change what you're doing. My study, real world data, it was the vaccine friendly vaccinated who were having worse outcomes compared to the unvaxxed, significantly worse. I mean, there's no comparison. So now maybe I mistook this for something else I read in your material, but I believe that the thing has a lot of information about well childcare and, uh, you know, things that have to do with pregnant women and all that. So I thought that was valuable and it probably is still timely, right? Yes. Uh, so what this book helps you with, if you're about to have a baby or you're pregnant or you've just had a baby, uh, the first chapter is about toxins. You need to avoid these toxins and you've added EMF, which I don't have in there. Um, and then it takes you from pregnancy right through the process. So you've got a guide that you can at least refer to in addition to the advice you might be getting elsewhere. Most pediatricians won't like this book because it's even though it's full of it's very conservative yeah <laughs> yeah well it's challenging the cdc schedule and, and that's the main reason they won't like it but i think everything else in there is is good sound scientifically backed information so so we've got these heavy metals which you can get in a screen particularly uh, mercury and aluminum how would you rate those two? And uh, is what about aluminum deodorants, which are ubiquitous? You can apparently, I try to switch out of that. My wife claims that I smell stinky, like some sort of stinky <laughs> old guys that she's, she comes in contact with somewhere. Right. So aluminum is, has absolutely no benefit to our biochemistry or our health at all. It is only a toxin, but it is ubiquitous. I think it's the third most common element in the earth. So it is everywhere, but our bodies are very well equipped to keep aluminum out of our bodies. I mean, I agree using an antiperspirant, which I do too, otherwise I stink. <laughs> I just can't handle going around stinking. So I'm taking some risk. I am, I'm aware of that, but Aluminum that you ingest, and here's where the CDC and, you and eat, most doctors have got eat, it wrong. There's eating on the surface of the skin and then uh, injection. So there's injection. three different. Okay. So three different I was things. I'm going to refer to that. 
Injection is by far the most dangerous because you're bypassing the natural barriers that keep most of the alumina that you put on your skin or that you eat does not get into your body. Uh, but when you inject it, you bypass all those mechanisms that would keep it out of your body. It's a direct hit. And those aluminum little nanoparticles that are in the vaccine are gobbled up by your white blood cells, your macrophages, whose job it is, is to get rid of toxic things that come into the body. But, you know, white blood cells don't live forever. They have a half, I mean, they have a lifespan of maybe four months, I think. So that aluminum that's contained within those white blood cells will get released um, somewhere else in the body. It's kind of the Trojan horse way to go from the injection side of the vaccine to get that aluminum into your brain, where it's going to cause a whole lot of problems. Uh, so yeah, aluminum should never have been put into vaccines. It's there to actually irritate the tissue, create a massive amount of uh, blood flow to the area. Otherwise, the vaccine wouldn't work at all. So it, it's put in there to create an immune response to the other components of the vaccine, but it's so toxic, it, they, sh they really should have never used it. Can your body clear aluminum by itself or not? Eventually, I, I've, I've read a study it, right? where a quarter of the aluminum that's injected is present uh, at two weeks, but the aluminum that's present at two weeks has a half-life of seven years. <laughs> so eventually it's clearing, but it's a really slow process. Um, there are doctors who specialize in, in detox and there are ways to, um, to chelate it. Yeah, to chelate it. I don't do IV chelation because it, it carries a, a fair amount of risk. And as a pediatrician, I, I just didn't see doing that with kids. But there are there are some ways to to try to get rid of it uh, more quickly. So is this a bigger or smaller risk than the mercury? Now, mercury, I think, has been forbidden from the vaccines. The thimerosal is no longer uh, uh, used, right? So the multi-dose flu shot still contains a huge amount of thimerosal. And that is just criminal because we've known since around 2000 was when um, the regulators, the FDA or whoever kind of were forced to have the industry remove thimerosal. Why they allowed it to stay in the multi-dose flu shot, I will never know because that's still a, a really high amount that's, that's in that vaccine. So no, it's not completely out, but it's so much safer. I mean, I was so excited in 2000, 2001, when they made the decision across the board. This was actually weird. When does pharmacy, all the, the various companies that were making vaccines, they all in step decided to remove the mercury from the shots. It was like, huh. I, I remember I had young kids at the time who were still in grade school. And I remember talking to one of their teachers and saying, just wait five more years from now, the kindergartners will, we're not going to see any more autism. I really believed that getting the mercury out was going to solve the problem. There was a little unfortunate, possibly coincidental, but I'm suspicious move that happened at the same time, right? In 2000, 2001, the CDC moved the hepatitis B shot from teenagers to newborns. So that vaccine with 250 micrograms of aluminum was now being given to brand new babies who only weigh, you know, 10 pounds. If you're a big, that's, it's, 
the FDA had at that time, and it's still an active document, but it's really hard to find. The limit to aluminum is five micrograms per kilogram per day. That is the max you're supposed to use. If Like if you were doing uh, parental nutrition, so a kid's in the ICU and they have to be fed by a tube in their vein, you cannot have more than five micrograms per kilogram per day of aluminum in that, in that solution. Well, the, the hep B vaccine is just like an IV. It's, it's parenteral. You're, you're bypassing enteral means you're eating it. So you're injecting it and you're injecting 250. A three kilo kid times five is 15 micrograms is the max they should have a day and you're injecting 250. So now that we know the toxicity of aluminum, I have no doubt that part of the reason the autism rate, for example, did not go down in 2001 when they removed the thimerosal is because they jacked up the amount of aluminum. You just switched one poison for another. It, you know, I, I hate to introduce this element, but it looks purposeful. And if you read my book, Cassandra's memo, COVID and the global psychopaths, um, you can read about, uh, uh, my theory about how these, these people, uh, who are running this show, particularly for COVID, are interested in damaging us above even profit. So anyway, that's a a, a little boost for my book. Um, but I, I, so you can check aluminum and mercury levels very easily. Do you ever do that? Uh, it's not that easy, I don't think. Well, it's a blood test. Costs hundred seventy dollars from Life Extension uh, in Florida. You can do it yourself if you want. Uh, but I'm, I, I guess that's not been part of your. Uh, your thing. Do you know anything, uh, any insider baseball about the association of Me uh, uh, medical boards? This this group has been said to be financed by huge donors who are unnamed, right? So it's obviously pharma or global predators or somebody. Um, but do you you you've studied this because you've been the victim of the uh, uh, Oregon Medical Board, which is operating irrationally and right. under the control of someone else. Now, these medical boards are draconian uh, organizations. They're not particularly honest. They they operate on uh, uh, revenue models in California. I think it's sixty five million dollar budget they get out of us and then they fine uh, the doctors. And they're actually generally not trying to take your license. They're trying to make you pay them indefinitely like huge amounts of money for all kinds of nonsense training and everything else. So anyway, do you have any uh, perspectives on the Federation of State Medical Boards? So I was actually not aware of that group until just about a year ago. So I'm, I'm deep into my, my issues with the medical board. What woke me up and, and caused me to, to become aware of them was actually this directive that went out to medical boards from that National Federation of Medical Boards about COVID. And the directive was that doctors who question the narrative, in other words, doctors who spread disinformation or misinformation, which of course is not defined, should have their licenses taken by the medical boards. So, so the medical boards got this directive. I think, I don't have the data, uh, but I think somehow medical boards are under the control of this federation. And I don't know why or how that right. happens. Um I, I haven't been able to figure it out either. Yeah. So um, what about uh, haemophilus influenza and epiglottitis? You know, when I was actively practicing emergency medicine, I saw epiglottitis and it was an emergency and it was H flu. And we all thought that that uh, vaccine might help. Uh, but uh, it just uh, opine about that for a moment. So, 
I trained at that time as well and was in practice early, early years of practice. We were seeing it and it was a very scary disease could be fatal. I never lost a patient or knew of a patient that died, but had several of them intubated. That's for sure. Uh, to make sure that their airway was preserved. The epiglottis is that little thing that hangs down at the back of your throat and it would get so swollen um, that actually it's not the, that the uvula is what hangs down. The epiglottis is what closes off your airway when you eat so that, you know, food doesn't go into your lungs. Well, you know, it could get swollen like a cherry and block off your airway and you could die. And hemophilus was one of the identified causes of that. It was H flu type B. It's not an influenza. It's actually a bacteria. Here's the interesting thing. With the introduction of the vaccine, which I do feel like it had a, it played a part in reducing the amount of epiglottitis we were seeing, but it also shifted the organism to non-type B. So today there's almost no type B and there's almost no epiglottitis. I don't know that the vaccine is doing any good at this point. Okay, so uh, uh, back to your book for one second. Um, you said, if you have no access to organic food, avoid the dirty dozen. And I was disappointed to find out that the dirty dozen included apples, peaches, nectarines, strawberries, grapes, celery, spinach, and sweet bell peppers, cucumbers, cherry tomatoes, and imported snap peas and potatoes. And so I thought, oh my God, I went uh, keto for a while, went carnitarian and got so constipated. I, <laughs> I won't describe what happened, but uh, it was not pretty. And now I've been eating some strawberries and grapes and celery and spinach and so on. But is washing this stuff enough or not? Or should, is the glyphosate so ubiquitous and so damaging that we really have to avoid these uh, fresh fruits? Well, you, you want to get them organic is what you want to do. So it's not avoiding them. It's finding them organic. And that I know that can be hard for certain things and, and sometimes expensive. And you believe the labels when they say it's organic, because my <laughs> wife always says they're they're The food industry is as bad as pharma. They lie about everything. Yeah, it's it's true. If you can find a relationship with a local farmer who's truly organic, um, you know, buy local and buy organic, then you really are. Um, probably in the right space of having true organic food and avoiding those pesticides. Uh, I agree with you. I think everything that's labeled organic is not. I've been reading about that, uh, but we still got to make a stab at it. I think some of the the, the strawberries, for example, I hear uh, you can't wash it off. It's no. just, um, I think you can you can get a fair bit of it off by washing uh, well with actually a very light amount of soap, or I, I think some other people use, uh, what do they use for washing vinegar for washing vegetables, a dilute vinegar solution can do it and, and get at least the surface stuff off, which would probably be the bulk of it. So now you, in your, in your book, again, to, uh, promote your book a little bit, I thought that the information about breastfeeding and how, how the mothers have to be persistent and treat their nipples and so on and so forth, it was great. And so I think there's a lot of useful information in there. If you can get past the, the point where you, it looks like Paul's actually promoting some of the vaccines, which he no longer does. Um, can you, I, you know, I came to the conclusion after reading commentators that SIDS like SADS was an industry construct to, you know, to uh, uh, confuse everyone away from the fact that vaccine injuries are the cause of SIDS. 
So, and I read one study, or I didn't read the study completely. I read of one study that said that 75% of SIDS was demonstrably related to in time to a childhood vaccine injection. Can you tell the listeners just a little bit about that issue? Yeah. So that term was coined right around the time I was coming out of medical school. So I wasn't aware that it was a new term. It was, you just get taught that there's this condition. Anytime folks, you see the, the word syndrome at the end of something, that means we don't know, or at least claiming that we don't know what causes it. We now have data. I, when I go around the country speaking, I have a, a slide presentation and um, I have a, a slide of a study on SIDS that shows 97% of all SIDS happens in the first 10 days after a vaccine. Oh, that's a high number. That's worse so, than I read. Yeah. So, so basically, folks, there is no SIDS in the unvaxxed. And when you when it's clustered right after a vaccine and it's not there right before the next vaccine, like if you compare it to the next 10 days or the 10 days prior to the next vaccine, you don't see SIDS then. So this is clearly cause and effect. And um, yeah, to, to correlate to what we're seeing today, there's a new condition out there, folks. You probably heard of it. SADS, sudden adult death syndrome. You see athletes dropping on the field and, and basically dying. Um, and it's just sad, isn't it? It's just a sudden adult death. And we'll call it a syndrome because we have no idea what caused it. Although funny thing is we've never seen that happening before until they added this COVID gene product that is causing massive heart inflammation, myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, you name it, clotting of, of ridiculous proportions. These, I mean, the harm is so clear. The connection is so clear, but we're just going to call it a sad thing. It's just a syndrome. Who knows? I There's a new condition out there, ABV. You may have heard of it. Anything but vaccines. <laughs> you, you know, the positive thing, if there is a positive thing from all this, is that you'd have to be a retard not to see the connections now. And if if you can connect the dots and realize that SIDS was a fabrication too, and that this is their new iteration of the same technique, um, then, then we've got a reason to distrust the vaccines more. Um, so what about mercury fillings? Does it make sense in every adult? I might got a mouthful of mercury fillings and I, should I get a mercury level? I went to the dentist and he said, he said, your mercury level is going to be so high if I root around in there that it isn't worth doing. You're 67, 69. I've forgotten how old I am. <laughs> 65 I, uh, years old. He says, don't bother with that. What do you think? I would disagree. I think you find a biological dentist who knows how to safely remove those mercury fillings because there are ample studies showing that when you drink coffee or a hot liquid, when you chew, you are constantly releasing a little bit of mercury into your body that's absorbed. And, uh, you know, mercury is highly, highly toxic. So I had mine removed. I had, a, I think I had four mercury fillings. Um, what you see in your mouth and you think of it as an amalgam or a silver filling, it's mercury folks. It's like half of that content is mercury. It's, it's an insane thing to have been doing. Uh, but the dental association is forbidden to talk about the dangers. They, they have a gag order on the dentist. Uh, so you just have to find a, a, an ethical dentist who's, they usually call themselves biological dentists and they'll have a vacuum hose so that the vapors caused by drilling it out are sucked into this high flow vacuum. 
And um, yeah, if you have a ton of them, that's not an easy undertaking. No, I've got two dozen. I oh. wanted, and you know, I had one of those dentists when I was a kid who took every little pit and he uses, yep. and my parents were trusting the dentists are crazier than the doctors yeah. in, in a, in, in a nutshell, but uh, okay. Well, well with that for- many, uh, with that many in your age, I would pause that that's a, that's a huge undertaking. I recently checked my mercury level for my own personal reasons and it was through the roof. Now, the reason I'm sure is that I was trying to avoid red meat and eating a lot of fish (laughs) and I should have known better. Uh, But, you know, at the time, what was the number? Well, it was I don't remember the exact number, but I was in the ninety nine point nine percentile. My wife had a twenty one because she's a cat. She eats only fish, but we got her off the fish and that'll clear that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've I've cut way back on my fish consumption. (laughs) Okay, so topical alum, uh, topical uh, mer- uh, magnesium. Tell us about that. You recommended Epsom salts in one of your uh, written pieces, and uh, you know talked about dark leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, beans, and fish <clears throat> that is low on the food chain. You know, Mercola is now talking about uh, seed oils being a problem. So I don't know about those nuts. It's it's you know I have a friend who was a rock climber who said almost everything scares me these days, almost <laughs> everything scares me. So we'd look at each other before we started to rock climb and we'd say almost everything scares me these days. So I don't know what to eliminate and what to, what to eat these now. I mean, I, for a while I, I was convinced that uh, the beef diet was absolutely great until I had my constipation misadventures. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's the, the studies on longevity seem to show that eating lower on the food chain and more green leafy vegetables and less meat seems to be uh, good for us. But then, you know, that there's so many variables. I mean, each person's issues are unique. If you're overweight or obese and you cut way back on carbs, you can drop a lot of weight and that's good for your health probably, uh, right? So there are a lot of factors. Uh, magnesium, I've just read that most of us are deficient. I have not myself, uh, done Epsom salt baths, but I know of lots of families who had kids who were on the spectrum who found benefit by doing that. So I think that's why that's in the book. You know, obviously you can take magnesium orally. If you take too much, you get diarrhea and other uh, GI problems. Um, I have a friend who I interviewed, you know, in, in one of my podcasts in Australia, she runs a magnesium, uh, topical magnesium or a, a cream magnesium business. And, uh, I mean, the anecdotes about this are stunning. They, people have cramps, they have, uh, fatigue, they have anxiety, and it seems to go away if they get their magnesium levels up. But I, I think going with uh, oral magnesium first is easiest if you can tolerate it. And then you can consider these other things. And I, you know, we've got a, we've got magnesium baths. I'm trying to get my wife in a, a magnesium bath you know with the with the flakes to see how she does i'm going to try uh-huh. her first before i try it um but uh well this has been a phenomenal pleasure paul i really have enjoyed this tremendously i guess we should just bounce off of the rise syndrome briefly okay and it seems like Tylenol has been promoted with this idea that aspirin is toxic for kids now you know i did emergency room pediatrics. I was an emergency room uh, specialist. And um, my evaluation consisted of having a look from the door, seeing what the kid looked like and 
if the, you know, and checking the vitals and the pulse ox. So that was it. And that was quite adequate for an emergency room, but you're more, more sophisticated. You're, you're so sophisticated that you even would check for some of these viral syndromes and try to identify which one the kid had, which seems like overkill to an emergency doctor who's just trying to figure out whether the kid goes out the door or up upstairs. Right. Um, well, um, you're so right to deal with, well, for rise syndrome, I haven't looked at it recently, but my the last time I looked in depth, it does not appear that the connection with aspirin was as solid as we thought. It, in fact, it's it's probably not. Um, but that that's a whole discussion for another time. Um, but kids who are very sick, I mean, th this we just went through a really rough uh, few months here with the kind of RSV, flu, and COVID all happening at once, and the news was making a big deal out of it. Uh, but when, even in a pediatric office, just like what you did in the emergency room, are they so sick that they need to be hospitalized? That's question number one, in my mind. Question number two is, do they have a viral illness or is it bacterial where antibiotics could help? And we don't want to miss a bacterial pneumonia, for example. So I had a very high-end CBC machine in my office, and that sometimes would help me because it would look, the, the, the differential on the CBC would look so viral. It was like, okay, we probably got a virus here. But we did have the technology the last few years where you could send off what we call it a recipe path, where you would get the top 30 organisms that could be causing the child's respiratory dis distress uh, from bacterial causes to viral causes. And uh, we could uh, we could figure out. Usually it was one thing. Sometimes you would have two or three things. Maybe one was a colonizer or two. Uh, but you could get a pretty good handle on what the child had. Now, if they're bad enough to need oxygen and be hospitalized and you can identify the bacteria, you know what to treat them with. Otherwise, oftentimes we just assume it's a virus. And often, usually it is a virus, but I don't, I don't like missing uh, a serious infection that could be treated. The emergency physicians approach at least 40 years ago or whenever maybe 50 years ago i hate to think it was 40 years ago was to give everybody antibiotics but of course that's not the approach now is it no and and you want to target you want to minimize antibiotics they have um a lot of science showing the damage it does to your uh, gut flora so that in your biome as they say and you alter the biome, you really alter the person's uh, ability to fight infection, their ability to, to process nutrients properly. I mean, there's there are a lot of benefits to having a healthy gut microbiome. Well, Paul, state your platforms where the people can get a hold of you. Um, and he has memberships and membership information that you can get. And this guy is a valuable animal. I think that <laughs> that, uh, that you should, if you want to, if you want to spend five dollars a month on something, um, consider subscribing to his Substack, which is uh, paulthomas.substack.com. No, so right? I don't have a Substack. Oh, okay. No, so people, I thought I found that. I thought I found one. No, no, no. You got to do that's, that right away and enter all your patients, enter all your Paul patients Thomas. in there. So I have a show folks. It's called, it was called against the wind. And this year we're just this, this episode coming out this week is going to be the first episode. We're calling it with the wind science revealed, but the, the website's the same. It's doctorsandscience.com. If you go to doctorsandscience.com, you'll have access to my show and a whole host of other resources, including my research, uh, the slide presentation of my data. Uh, when I travel around the country speaking about the vaxxed, unvaxxed data, folks, it's the most powerful data you need to have 
at your fingertips so you can make a good decision about what you want to do with regards to the vaccine question. But moving forward in 2023, uh, I'm pivoting into something that I would call, uh, you know, we're with the wind because, yeah, I've been fighting the system, fighting the system, but it's time to realize we actually have the knowledge we need now and uh, we need to embrace it and link arms with everybody else that's waking up to the fact that, yeah, there was a system, a very corrupt system. There is a very corrupt system that has nothing to do with our health and only really aims to harm us. And we don't have to apologize to anybody. Let's move forward and and in love and let's get the information out there so people can get it. Kidsfirstforever.com is my new platform. Uh, so doctorsandscience.com, kidsfirstforever.com. Those are the two places you'll find me. Thank you for your attention. Paul, I can tell my listeners can tell you're not a black pill. They they refer to me as the black pill. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much, and uh, we'll chat soon. Thanks for having me on your show.